You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In J.D. Salinger's short story, Franny, the title character, a brilliant, reflective undergraduate, has a nervous breakdown while praying the famous Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. In the story's sequel, Zoe, we learn the reason. As Franny's brother Zoe tells her, her problem is the Jesus she's praying to is not the real Jesus at all, not the Jesus of the Gospels. That Jesus, attractive though he may be, says too many things that Franny doesn't approve of, and so she's taken pieces of them and combined them with pieces of Epictetus, St. Francis, and Heidi's grandfather to create her own Jesus. When she tries to worship this idol, she implodes. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Strauss, professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary, San Diego, and associate editor of the NIV Study Bible. Dr. Strauss's latest book, Jesus Behaving Badly, argues that the world is full of Frannies and that the real Jesus is more complicated and scandalous than we would dare to imagine. It's out now from InterVarsity. I'm delighted it brings him here today. Thanks for coming on the show, Mark. Great to be with you, Michael. Thanks. Well, your opening chapter points out that Jesus is perennially popular, even or especially among non-Christians. Why is that? And should we see it as a good sign or as a bad one that people keep wanting Jesus around? Oh, I think it's a good one. I mean, there's there's no doubt that there's many features of Jesus's ministry uh, that are viewed as authentic by just about everybody that are extremely attractive and transformative. Um, and, and so there is a very positive perspective on him among um, diverse religious traditions, among non-religious traditions, and among anti-religious traditions even. What is it about Jesus that keeps bringing people to him? People, people, bringing people to him outside of the church, I guess I should say. Yeah, I guess a lot of his countercultural teaching in particular, because we know that he lived in a world, an incredibly violent world, um, a world where you you loved your friends and hated your enemies, and, and especially, I think, um, his teaching about peacemaking, his teaching about loving your enemies is extraordinarily attractive. Um, also, he, uh, there's no doubt that he's had a profound and amazing impact on human history in terms of you know, a, a third of the world's population identifying themselves as Christians, um, in terms of the, the number of people throughout the centuries that he has impacted and, and transformed, uh, the very fact that our calendar is dated uh, to his birth. Um, these, these kinds of things show that he was a profoundly influential person, um, yet um, teaching a very countercultural message. And most people who make that kind of impact on the world do so because of power, conquest, Etc. But but Jesus did so despite the fact that he was crucified, despite the fact that he was executed as a criminal under the most horrific um, conditions. And I think probably that combination of, of just re- remarkably countercultural teaching, um, enormous influence, um, and yet not being the kind of person who generally carries that sort of influence. What's your emotional response when someone who doesn't like Christianity comes out and says, "But I like Jesus." I mean, you quote the uh, the famous Gandhi quote: "I don't like I don't like Christians, but I like your Jesus." I think that's that's how it goes. What, what's your emotional response when you hear people say things like that? Uh, that that's a good question. Um, I, I think I understand it because I too live in the Christian world, and I too see um, 
the contradictions and the hypocrisy and how much how much of the world is in the church um, how much we adopt certain political values and claim that they're christian and and so I think we, we all see that. We all see the humanness um, and the human failing of, of the church. And, um, and so I guess I, I do understand. I don't have a negative reaction. Um, I think probably uh, my, my first reaction is, is, can we connect Jesus to Christianity? Is, am I able to do that? And how could I communicate, if, if I can confirm that connection, in fact, how can I communicate that connection to someone is, is so hostile towards Christianity. I like to think of the, the kind of cardboard Jesus you, you get as hippie Jesus. And, and so I guess the question is, how can we take people's attraction to hippie Jesus and use it to bring them to the actual Jesus? Yeah, and, and what is the actual Jesus? How much hippie did Jesus have in him? I mean, right. he was a traveling itinerant philosopher with a band of friends roaming with him, living off other people's... Um, um, patronage. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, in some ways, you know, John Dominic Crossan called him, you know, a, a, a hippie in a, um, a world of Augustinian elites. And there, there is some truth to that. And I, I guess, I guess we tend, we have a tendency to make, everybody has a tendency to make Jesus in their own image. And so in the West, we're going to make him um, into a American Christian, if, if you will. And, and I'm not afraid, I don't, I don't think we need to be afraid of exploring um, those features of him which, which we might at first be um, appalled at um, or repulsed at. Uh, so, so I'm, you know, I, I think that we should embrace that in one sense to say, okay, in what sense was Jesus? Was Jesus a hippie? Your, your subtitle uses the, the term paradoxes. It refers to Jesus as paradoxes. What do, what do you mean that his personality is paradoxical? Well, the, the book is outlined in this way, and it's outlined as a series of paradoxes. And I think uh, things we say about Jesus, Jesus is a peace, peacemaker. There's one of the things that everyone seems to affirm. Blessed are, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. And he says, turn the other cheek. These are the things that sort of are, go to the root of, of Jesus' character. And yet Jesus said some remarkable things about um, hating your family, uh, about buying a sword, um, about bringing fire to the earth, about not, not coming to bring peace but conflict. So you, you've got almost everything we can say about Jesus in terms of sort of his core teaching. We have statements to the contrary or statements that seem to be saying the opposite. And so these, these paradoxes, um, the whole book is outlined around a, a series of these paradoxes. Is he a revolutionary or is he a pacifist? Is he angry or is he loving? I mean, he goes into incredible name-calling tirades against the religious leaders. Um, is he legalist or is he grace-filled? He calls for perfection and yet tells remarkable parables um, about God's grace um, on the undeserving. And so these, these paradoxes run throughout his teaching, his ministry, his actions. And so the book centers on those paradoxes and seeks, okay, from these paradoxes, what can we learn about the the, the essential mission and, and message of Jesus. And that's, that's the way that the book is structured. It's not just a hard sayings of Jesus book, which is what, you know, that Jesus behaving badly might be taken as a hard sayings of Jesus book. And I wanted it to be more than that. I wanted it to be using these paradoxes to explore the identity of Jesus, perhaps unlike what we may think initially, um, and the mission and purpose of Jesus and how these paradoxes fit fit into that. One of the 
you know, key theses of the book is when Jesus is at his most difficult, when Jesus is at his most paradoxical, he's also at his most profound, and we're, we're very close to the heart of Jesus' message. And, I mean, as you say, if all of us are, are looking into the Gospels and finding the Jesus who looks more like us, it's, it's important that he be paradoxical, because that means whatever side you go too far to, he's going to correct you just in your process of rereading the Gospels. Right, right, exactly. And that there, there's some synthesis, too. I think there is an answer, um, a, a, an answer, too. Is Jesus, was Jesus a pacifist or was he a revolutionary? I, th- I think the synthesis gets at the heart of his, his message. So it's not just finding happy mediums so much as finding sort of a radical synthesis that explains these apparently uh, contradictory statements Jesus makes. And a, and a common theme in your book is that a lot of our misreadings would be alleviated if we understood the context into which the Gospels were written. In other words, these are paradoxes only if you don't understand the milieu that they come from. Uh, do you think modern people are especially prone to ignore context? Uh, oh, absolutely. And especially in the sense that we live in a Christian world, an institutionally Christian world. And so, you know, throughout the book, I really keep trying to take us back to to Jesus' fundamental message, which is the proclamation of the kingdom of God, what that would have meant to his com- contemporaries and what that, that meant to him. And so that, that sort of theme that we keep coming back to, I think, is essential. Uh, what kind of king did Jesus claim to be if he claimed to be a king? What kind of kingdom did he, did he claim to be inaugurating? Um, because I think our understanding and comprehension of the, of the kingdom of God in terms of our Contemporary Christian Christianity as an institution, Christianity as Christendom, um, is very different than what Jesus was was proclaiming as the kingdom of God. The the problem when you when you write about scripture, I suspect. I mean, I'm an English professor. I'm not a I'm not a theologian, so maybe I shouldn't be telling you what the problem is. But I would You're think. <laughs> <laughs> but I would I would think one problem with with writing about scripture is that the text has to be simultaneously grounded in a particular cultural context and written in some points, to all people at all times? Do we, do we risk going too far into contextualization and, and then also losing sight of some elements of Jesus? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think there, there is a definite balance there. And that's, I mean, my, I'm a New Testament professor and, and, and a hermeneutics teacher. And so, you know, everything I do in terms of my teaching is, is that, um, that double, double side or two-edged Side of I want to take my, re, my, my students into the world of the text and hear the text as it was originally heard. Uh, I mean, these are human words set in, in historical contexts and cultures and, and settings, and I want them to, to live that setting. But at the same time, we also believe as evangelicals that, that it is God's word, that there is some sense in which through these culturally embedded texts, God is communicating to us here and now. And this has a message that is relevant to us, relevant to our cultural setting, relevant to, to the world in which we live. And so that's, that's always a challenge. And, and throughout, you know, not just in the Jesus stories, but throughout the biblical text, Old and New Testament, is how do we take um, culturally embedded texts and find God's word to us in them? So we create a cultural Jesus when we move too far in one direction or the other. Maybe, I mean, maybe the, the danger in moving too far into contextualization is not creating a cultural Jesus. It's not caring about Jesus beyond 
an artifact that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. And, and the book kind of ends with the, the Jesus who spoke is the Jesus who's still speaking. And it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's the living Jesus that we worship um, that ultimately is how we, how we get to know him. Um, we can't ignore the biblical picture because that's a revelation of who, who Jesus is and was. Um, but it's, it's in the context of the worship of the church that we, we today here and now experience Jesus. And that's critically important. If, if what Jesus said is true and if what we believe in terms of what the movement he launched is true, then it is the abiding presence of Jesus through his spirit in the church that is, is most important. Well, as you said, the, the bulk of your book is a systematic analysis of these various paradoxical aspects of Christ's personality. Um, the first one is one that's been in the news a lot the last few years. A, lo- a lot of people think of Jesus as being having come to bring peace, but Reza Aslan and others have argued that he was actually this political revolutionary, and certainly it's inarguable that he sometimes speaks in rather violent, disturbing imagery. What do we need to make of, a, of, of those passages? Yeah, I, I think that's at, that's at the heart of Jesus' message, and I think, and, and we, have to, we have to find a way to resolve the paradox, either to say, okay, these sayings are not authentic, these are authentic, um, but to me, it, it, they both have to be authentic. Jesus' radical statements about peacemaking, about non-retaliation, turning the other cheek, carrying an extra mile, carrying a burden an extra mile, these, these have to be authentic. They're so countercultural. And yet the sayings about fire and bringing fire to the earth and, and the sword and so forth also have to be authentic because they are so radically different than what the church was proclaiming. Um, about the message uh, of Jesus. In other words, these sayings could not have been created by the early church. So where do we find the resolution? And where I take readers in that, in that second chapter, the first chapter is introduction, but the second chapter, which is revolutionary or pacifist, is what Jesus actually says when he's challenged on this traditional view of the Messiah. I think that the most significant passage is the question of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, I, I believe, you know, viewed Jesus as... Um, as the Messiah. And, and as an apocalyptic prophet, John expected Jesus to, to bring in the kingdom in a violent deluge of fire um, and Holy Spirit and purifying the righteous and destroying the wicked, establishing God's kingdom. I truly believe that was the vision John had. So um, he's arrested now and languishing in prison, and he, he doesn't see Jesus doing this. Jesus is teaching and feeding people and healing the sick, and he just doesn't get it, and he's becoming frustrated and disappointed. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Now, again, that, could, that saying couldn't have been invented by the early church, where John the Baptist, this stellar witness to Jesus, actually, in fact, questions whether Jesus really is the Messiah. That has to be an authentic event that, Jesus sent, or that John sent his disciples uh, to, to ask Jesus whether he really was the coming one. And Jesus' response is profound. He, he, he says, the lame walk, the blind see, the poor have the good news preached to them, the, the dead are raised. Then he says, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on, on these things, um, um, on me. And, um, and, you know, Jesus basically points to his healings and his exorcisms and his raising people from the dead as evidence that he's the Messiah. And that's not just because he's got power, so he's the Messiah, or that he's got compassion because he's the Messiah. Those passages he quotes allude back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 36, 35, 
um, Isaiah 29, passages that are talking about God's restoration of creation. And so ultimately Jesus says, I've come to restore creation. My healings are snapshots. My healings are previews of the coming restoration of creation. So um, we, we move next, next to his, his exorcisms where he, he, he describes his exorcisms as doing battle with Satan and, and causing Satan to fall from heaven and establishing the kingdom of God over against the kingdom of Satan. And we see from, from this, Jesus defines his ministry not as the overthrow of the Roman authorities, not as a physical res- revolution, but as much more radical than that. It doesn't go back to the glory days of the kingdom of King David or the Maccabees, the, the great periods of, 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 of an earthly kingdom. Instead, they go back, these images go back to the Garden of Eden, um, human fallenness, which, which initiated disease and death, and when Satan had the victory um, in the Garden. So Jesus is taking, is defining his radical revolutionary ministry with reference to the restoration of creation, not the restoration of the the glory days of the kingdom as Israel understood it, but rather to the restoration of creation itself. And so it's a it, that's the radical kingdom message is it has to do with with the restoration of creation. And it's and actually that, more that, radical than they want it to be. Far more radical. I mean, they wanted Romans. They wanted Roman legions toast. They wanted, you know, Jesus to burn up a few Roman legions. That was the kind of freedom they wanted. Uh, Jesus has a much grander purpose and plan for that. And then when you link that with his um, statements about um, becoming an atoning sacrifice for sins, Mark 10, 45, you realize that Jesus really did view his life and death and resurrection as inaugurating the new age, the eschaton, the the eschatological restoration. And that then makes sense of statements about fire and about the sword. sword, They are metaphorical. There's no doubt about that. Um, But it's a violent overthrow of the kingdom of Satan and establishing the, the kingdom of God. Sorry, that's a very long answer, but it's sort well, of, it's a complicated question. Yeah, and the thesis of the book, yeah. And I've been I've been reading back through uh, the Book of Isaiah lately, and it, it strikes me how much of the messianic imagery in that book is also both peaceable and violent. Exactly. Yeah. So I yeah. mean, and maybe if we're reading the tradition right, Davidic restoration coming along with the Davidic restoration, the restoration of the kingdom of David is restoration of creation. Isaiah eleven moves right from the Davidic king right into the restoration of creation. Isaiah 9 does the same thing. Then you move to the servant figure, you know, of Isaiah 42 and so forth. You get the same thing. You get new Exodus imagery, but beside new Exodus imagery, you get new creation imagery. Very, very powerful. We miss that if we don't read Isaiah as a unity, as Jesus certainly did. Whatever you believe about the, the you know, the disunity of Isaiah historically, Jesus certainly read it as a unity, and, and, and restoration of creation goes hand in hand with the coming of God's kingdom. And you, I mean, you don't need it to be the work of a single author for it to be unified. No, That's exactly. That's the nice thing about divine inspiration, isn't it? <laughs> uh, one thing you say that I hadn't heard before is that Jesus actually had quite a bit in common with the Pharisees' theology, uh, especially as compared with the Sadducees. Given their shared theological commitments, why did Jesus and the Pharisees get along so poorly? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's why the Baptists on one side of the street get along so poorly with the other Baptists on the other side of the street, or Presbyterians, or, or whatever. I, I think <laughs> when you share a lot with someone... Uh, you tend to focus on those things you, you differ. Well, that, that's one explanation. But the other explanation is even though they had 
a lot in common theologically um, in terms of their view of Scripture, in terms of their view of the, of the resurrection and, the, and the, the coming kingdom of God, in terms of a, of a Messiah. The Sadducees didn't even believe there was going to be a Davidic a figure from the line of David. Uh, they, they had a great deal in common, but then by having a great deal in common, I think these were the most popular beliefs within um, Judaism of the day. And so they're vying for the same um, constituency, if you will. Particularly in Galilee, I think we see the conflicts with the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law or the scribes um, in, in Galilee because Jesus is claiming that he is inaugurating, in some sense, the kingdom. Well, the Pharisees were the guardians of the kingdom of God. They were, they were Israel's leaders. Um, Jesus is claiming that the kingdom is arriving in his own words and deeds. Well, they would say the kingdom is going to arrive through their leadership. Uh, Jesus chooses 12 disciples, which just could not be missed, that this is in some sense the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, the Pharisees, they're the guardians over the 12 tribes of Israel. So I think uh, they're, they're vying over the same turf, and they're vying, and, and Jesus is sheep-stealing, if you will. He's, he's uh, drawing people to himself with his teaching, with his miracles, and so forth. So it really is... You know, you can call it jealousy, competition. It's all of those things that, that you know, that tear down ministries today, um, the, the very same things. It's about power. It's about influence, et cetera. And so it, for, for Jesus, this upstart rabbi, to be drawing the crowds to himself is, is without doubt going to create conflict. What's interesting to me about that is I've, I've always been trained, I suppose, to think that Jesus is radically different than both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and especially the Pharisees, because they get such a bad name in Sunday school, I suppose is what I'm thinking of, um, that, that Jesus couldn't possibly have anything in common with them. But you're, you're classing him as not exactly one of them, but a fellow traveler with them in some ways. Suggest oh, absolutely. That- Theologically, Jesus has far more in common with the Pharisees. Um, and and we, it's funny, we actually see this coming out, this is kind of a side trail, but see this coming out in Luke's Gospel and in the book of Acts, of course, where Paul divides the Sanhedrin by claiming to believe in the, re- or by saying he's, he's on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Well, that was a huge dividing line between Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus, here's something radical, Jesus had far more in common in his theology with the Pharisees than the Pharisees did with the Sadducees. And so, I mean, they would get along fine. The only difference, and it was a radical difference, is Jesus said the kingdom of God is breaking in, and I'm its chief spokesperson and inaugurator. And the Pharisees could not stomach that, but they certainly believed the kingdom was coming. They certainly believed there was going to be a Messiah from the line of David to establish the kingdom. They certainly believed the dead would rise, and um, the resurrection would begin and inaugurate this, this, um, this eternal kingdom. The Sadducees believed in none of that, and so that they they were um, certainly uh, would be radically opposed to Jesus's theology. Whereas the Pharisees would say, "Yeah, we believe everything he said, except for the fact that he's the one establishing this." But that, that's interesting too, because Jesus isn't. I mean, he has a few encounters with the Sadducees, but for the most part, he's not bothering with them. Whereas the, these these people with whom he shares a good deal of background, he is able to argue with and able to get angry at in some cases and vice versa. Of course, you wonder if the Pharisees would have persecuted the Sadducees if the Sadducees hadn't had so much political power. Right, yeah. And I think probably a lot of it is also the center of power. Is The Sadducees, as far as we can tell, were primarily based 
in Judea and Jerusalem. So when Jesus came to Jerusalem and, and you know, entered the temple, caused a disruption there, and entered the city on a donkey, um, in some sense identifying himself with messianic aspirations, this is when the Sadducees, together with the priestly leadership, would have taken notice and said, you know, this guy has got to be stopped. So Jesus intentionally provoked the Sadducees when he came to Jerusalem. But I don't think the Sadducees had much influence or presence in Galilee up in the north where the, you know, most of Jesus' early ministry took place. Well, uh, as you know, one of the strangest episodes in the New Testament, and I'm so glad you, you, you covered this because I had never heard an explanation of it that made much sense to me. Uh, I'm talking about the, the episode where Jesus, faced with a legion of demons, casts them into this enormous herd of pigs, which throws itself off a cliff. Uh, what on earth is happening in that story? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, you know, take away all the mystery um, because there, that's a problematic story. There's no doubt about that. But we have to realize what has just taken place um, is Jesus has confronted this legion of demons. I mean, an incredible demonic force. And so you've got the all the forces of Satan allied against him, and with a word he casts them out. And um, the, the puzzling thing about this is that he bargains with these these demons. Evidently, you know, they say. He, he threatens to cast them out, and they say, you know, put us in the swine, put us in the pigs. And he agrees to do this. And this, this you know, is just just apparently shocking. And I think, that, you know, there, there's all kinds of – the episode takes place in, in the various synoptic gospels, but, but it's, it's Mark's story, first of all. And I think, you know, there's all kinds of Mark and irony here. Uh, the, demons, the demons think that they're getting away with it by going into the pigs. But in fact, they they receive precisely the destruction that they feared because the pigs go into the, the the sea, and the sea is the symbol of chaos and death and demonic and so forth. And so, so I think they they sort of end up getting what they deserve. But one of the biggest problems for for the reader is that Jesus causes this massive loss of life. Yeah, and and livelihood, right? Somebody owns that herd of pigs. This is someone's fortune, basically. That he that he. And 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 we're we're you know we're struck by this and, and say why would Jesus possibly do this and and in, in the book I suggest a couple of things yeah and you know maybe most controversial did Jesus even know what was going to happen Jesus didn't know everything in his earthly life certainly he's he's receiving the guidance from the Holy Spirit he's living in the power and presence and guidance of the Holy Spirit so he may not have known what was going to happen that's that's one thing I'm not I'm not going to stake my flag on you know set my standard on, on that one. But, but, but I think the other thing is um, death, mayhem, destruction, this is the world. This is the fallen world we live in. And it's a result of sin and evil and Satan and, demon and demons and, and all, of, all of those things. So should we really be surprised when Jesus engages the kingdom of darkness that the result is, is mayhem and dis destruction? Um, I, it, it's part of our fallen world, and, and, and so we see essentially the consequences of evil playing out in this story with massive death. Now, Jesus, Jesus frees the human being, and there's the shocking thing. At the end, you know, the, the townspeople arrive, and they see two things. 
They see carnage in the sea with all these unclean pigs. And then they see this man who was incredibly unclean, as demonic, as in the tombs, as all these things, sitting in his right mind completely cleansed. And they can either turn left or they can turn right. They can look at the man and and, and embrace what Jesus has come to do, which is to bring humanity to restoration and right relationship with God. Or they can embrace the destruction and fear God, Jesus for, for his power. And, and they reject, you know, the contrast between what the man does. He begs to follow Jesus. He, he falls in line in discipleship, whereas the people reject Jesus out of fear of, their, of the loss of livelihood. So, so it's, a, it's a key moment in the kingdom of God when, you know, the, the kingdom of darkness has been defeated with all the mayhem and destruction that that results in. Um, and, and they're unwilling to embrace the, the fact that the kingdom is arriving through this, this individual if they're willing to give up the earthly things and embrace, uh, embrace the kingdom, embrace the spiritual things. It's kind of, it kind of parallels with the uh, the parable of the, uh, the parable of the banquet, doesn't it? Where people can't they, they refuse to come to the banquet because they have uh, I think it's a field to sell or something. Yeah, These, a field to sell, oxen to test, and a a, a wedding to, or a marriage to to attend to. Yeah, and and uh, exactly exactly the case. Every parable has to be linked to Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom, and the parable of the great banquet is is so integrally linked with that, and and really allegorical in the sense that, that there's no doubt that the invited guests represent the spiritual elite, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the, the, the scribes or teachers of the law, the Sadducees, and they are the ones who are invited to the banquet. Of course they are. They're Israel's religious elite. I was, I, I was just thinking in terms of in terms oh, of people people seeing something miraculous or being invited to something incredible and, and instead looking at Looking at something financial. Oh, the mundane. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and that that certainly the parable certainly functions on that level. That they're not they're not thinking in terms of of the kingdom. They're thinking in terms of their their particular influence, spheres of influence and power. Absolutely. Still feel bad for the guy who owned the pigs, though. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he asked and, and, for it. Just resolve every. We can't tie everything up nice and tidy. We have to realize that it's going to be messy, and and we don't. You as as soon as we understand Jesus, we're in trouble, right? Because then I think we we put him in a box, right? And I, I think that that is really the overall takeaway I got from this book, which is the the moment Jesus stops scandalizing us is the moment we have tamed him. Yeah, I mean. That's true probably of any person, but it should definitely be true of Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, of course, the rich young ruler is, is the classic example of that. We, we look at that story and we go, oh, good, he told him to sell all he had and give, give to the poor. He didn't tell us that, you know. Suddenly we've tamed that radical story that basically says you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you relinquish absolutely everything that you own. <laughs> so, you don't hear a lot of sermons on that one. No, no, you don't. Not no. even during stewardship month. <laughs> Well, it seems to me a lot of our confusion about who Jesus is and what he demands of us comes from our failure to appreciate the dialectic of law and gospel. That's the central tension, as I read it, that underlines the New Testament. What does Jesus have to say about that subject, and am I right to call it a dialectic instead of... I mean, sometimes you just hear it as like a replacement of the law by the gospel, but it seems to something more complicated than that to me. Yeah, um, and, and I talk a little bit about this in the chapter on is, you know, is he legalist or, or grace grace-filled, um, you know, and, and 
you look at the different Gospels and you do see somewhat different takes on the relationship of, of Jesus' message uh, to the law. Um, but but, but I, I think we, we do need to realize that it, Jesus' message is fundamentally one of grace um, and the transforming power of, of grace. And even though Jesus doesn't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit and the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit, I think that underlines all of this, that when, when people give up everything, when they sacrifice all and come to God, he produces a rebirth, to use Jahani language. He produces an internal transformation that then enables us to live in a, in a, at a different level, in a different sphere. And so when Jesus says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, he's talking about the transform, I believe, he's talking about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit accomplishes um, you know, in light of the new covenant and the, the establishment of the kingdom of God that Jesus is, is proclaiming. So uh, he, he's not a legalist I mean, in, in the sense he's, he's, he's you know, it's, it's all about God's gift. It's all about God's grace. But that transformative power of the grace will work a transformation um, in individuals. Maybe the biggest hang-up people have about Christianity is the existence of hell. And it's not surprising that hippie Jesus never talks about hell. <laughs> yeah. But you point out, almost everything the Bible says about hell comes straight from Jesus. This is not one we can blame on Paul. Why does Jesus talk about hell so much? Yeah, uh, well, that's a good question. Those why, those why questions are the hardest ones. I wish he didn't so much. Um, but, but, but certainly the, you know, the, the, the focus, of, again, going back to the central focus of his, his message is the kingdom of God, and the, the coming of God's kingdom means the establishment of justice and righteousness. It's just not, you know, it's just not living on clouds by and by and, and enjoying God's presence. It's the matter of making every wrong right and restoring creation. And so judgment is, is always a fundamental part of, of eschatological teaching. And so you know, in the, in the chapter on, on hell, um, uh, we, we really focus on this, that, that it's, it's not about burning fire necessarily. It's not about torture. It's, it's about justice. And, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, all kinds of questions are raised. Well, how long does it take to establish God's justice in terms of, of hellfire? You know, is, is, is hell eternal conscious punishment? Is hell annihilationism? Is, is hell ultimate restoration of, of all things? And I, I want to I want to put those on the table because they're 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 these are really challenging and difficult questions. There's no doubt there's no doubt about that. But I want to keep driving back to the issue that it's it's ultimately about justice. If 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 there is no justice, if if the the wicked are not called to account, if if Hitler does not face judgment day, if his, he simply you know commits suicide, and that's the, that's the end of his existence. Then there is no justice in this world, and uh, and so a belief in hell, however you define that, a belief in hell is simply a belief that God is God and that that, that He's a God both of love but also of of justice. You do you do lay out the uh, the the options there in terms of universalism and annihilationism. Do you do you want to take a particular stand on on what hell is, how long it lasts, or do you just see it as an open question? 
Yeah, I don't. I don't want to publicly take a stand on that, to be honest, because I don't want to. I don't want to bias people in one direction or another. I and 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 maybe out of personal ignorance, I simply don't know. I mean, I to, to be honest, and I think it comes out in the book. Eternal conscious torment is is extremely puzzling to me um, because it does. Raise, seem to raise enormous ethical questions. And I know the theologians, I'm not a theologian, I'm a simple biblical, biblical scholar, uh, I know the theologians have answers to that, but they don't make a lot of sense in my mind. And, and so I don't know the answer, and I'm going to plead agnostic in terms of that. But, I, but to be fully honest, is I, I really struggle with the justice of God with reference to eternal conscious, conscious torment. And so I, that struggle goes on in my head, and I, I, I have not yet reached a full resolution. So in that chapter, I sort of present my own um, existential cons- concerns and, and thoughts related to that and, and don't really then say where I am. I just want to present the best arguments for, for each of those views and the counter-arguments and so forth. And then people can – I do think they are viable options. I don't, I don't think one, one is orthodox, the other are heretical. I think they're viable options within an evangelical view of Scripture. The important thing is not to ignore hell as a as a as a function of God's judgment. Exactly, exactly, and and you know that that justice and judgment is a reality, and without without it, we don't have God, uh, the God of of uh, who we worship. So you're certainly going to have to cut out a lot of the red parts of your Bible. <laughs> yeah. it, it, I mean, like you say, it's not a minor doctrine for Jesus. He talks about it all the time. He, he does. He talks about it more than anyone else, and he, he uses images of fire more than anyone else. To me, the most troublesome statements Jesus makes are the things he says about his own family. Um, he he runs away to the temple at age 12. He snaps at his mother when she asks him to turn water into wine. He makes a, a shocking number of statements that seem to suggest that families are useless if they're not outright dangerous. What does Jesus have against families, and how did that attitude somehow morph 2,000 years later into uh, Christian radio being safe for the whole family? Yeah, Jesus makes some pretty radical statements uh, about family. Um, in Luke's version of the saying, um, he says, unless you hate mother and father and brother and sister and even spouse, um, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Um, that's almost certainly the, the original what Jesus actually said. Matthew softens it a bit and says, unless you love me more than these, but but it, it would seem that Matthew is, you know, this, this was such a stark, strong statement. Matthew softens it a bit. You can imagine someone softening rather than making more more radical. And I don't think there's any doubt that Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's, he's exaggerating, but he does that. That's just part of the rhetoric. But it does. It's meant to shake us up. It's meant to shock us. It's, it's, it's meant to grab us, grab our attention. And it certainly does grab our attention. But, but I think, again, related to the kingdom of God, it, it points to the radical transformation that's taking place in the kingdom of God, and that the, the us versus them, that you have to choose a side here. And human families, which, of course, you know, in, in that culture and in ours, it are, are the closest bonds of, of relationship, um, physical human families become ultimately irrelevant by contrast to spiritual families. Jesus is calling out the people of God from the domain of Satan, from, from the fallen world. And, and the people that come out become the family of God, the children, the children of God. That, that new family replaces 
in many ways the old the old one. That doesn't mean you hate or repudiate your parents or brothers and sisters, but it does mean that your ultimate allegiance lies with your new spiritual family. And, and in our own culture where we really have freedom of religion, if someone breaks with their family and tradition, it's it's usually not that big a deal. You might even be ostracized, you might, you know, disowned even, but it's not going to cost you your life. But in some places around the world, in Islamic cultures, for example, or the Hindu culture, where if you break from your family, potentially, you, you can be treated as dead, and, and we give some examples in the book, and, um, and even killed uh, for this. This is, a, this is a radical, radical break that you lose family identity. And and uh, I think that would have been the case as well in, in Jesus' context, whether it's the Jewish context or the Greco-Roman world, where to, to join the family of God would have meant potentially losing those, those, those physical family connections. And Jesus says this is far more, these spirit, the spiritual family is far more important in light of the radical transformation, the radical reality of what the kingdom of God is whether you are for God or against God in terms of the establishment of his kingdom, the establishment of his, his salvation, um, that division is far more significant than any physical physical family. And so when, I mean, the great statement when um, right after the what we call the Beelzebub controversy, when the religious leaders reject Jesus, um, and right after that, and it's one of Mark's sandwich structures where Jesus' family comes to him, and they say, your family is outside. And Jesus says, who is my family? And he looks around at his disciples and says, these are my brothers and sisters. These, this is my true family. That is just, we, we don't understand how radical that statement is in terms of a first century cultural context. Um, but Jesus is essentially redefining the parameters of human relationships, and it's, it's those who join the kingdom of God. It's, it's those who identify themselves with him that become a new family, um, a spiritual family that, is, that, that takes precedent over any physical family or any physical bonds or bonds of clan or nation. It's a huge, huge application for us today in, in, in a society that is highly nationalistic and where to be American is in many ways more important for most than to be a, a Christian and where the bond with our brothers and sisters around the world for, for many is less significant than our, bound at, our, our bond as, as Americans. Oh, sure, yeah. And so, so many of the early Christians seem to take Jesus much more seriously on this than we do. I mean, there's a lot of anti-marriage attitude in the first century of the church, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah, and I'm not sure, you know, that might, in ma- many ways, the, the celibacy focus uh, might be an over uh, or a misunderstanding of Jesus' radical call for, for break and, and disconnect. It's, 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 it's not, I don't think it's, it's so much related to, you know, celibacy for the kingdom as it's related to allegiance to the kingdom of God over against any human allegiance, any traditional family or clan allegiance. Well, it's also related to something you cover later in the book, which is they believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, and so why would you bother? Why would you bother propagating the human race? Why would you bother having a family? Why would you bother setting up these structures when the world is not going to exist thirty years from now? And and so that that's another thing you grapple with here is 
what did Christ mean when he said the kingdom of some of you will not uh, t- what is it? Some of you will not taste death before you've yeah. tasted the kingdom of God and its power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In chapter eleven, we deal with those, and there's four difficult sayings where Jesus seems to indicate that the kingdom is going to come in a very short time, within the first generation, or before the disciples even proclaim the gospel to all the towns of um, of, of Israel. And and so those those are certainly challenging passages and. Um, we really, in, in the book, we, we talk about the fact that the, the, the under, Jesus' understanding of the kingdom is far more multifaceted than we tend to think, that the, the kingdom comes through a series of events. Um, it comes through his life and those, those exorcisms and healings that he's doing. It comes through his death and his, what he identifies as a, as a atoning death, as a ransom for sins. It comes through his resurrection, which is the inauguration of the of the uh, final resurrection. It comes through Pentecost with the pouring out of the Spirit, which inaugurates the new covenant. And then the most controversial one, perhaps, is it comes through the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And we have to, I, I do, I, you know, I'm not a preterist, fully a preterist, but we do have to take that into account, that that's an enormously significant event, eschatological event, the destruction of Jerusalem. And so I do think on a number of these sayings, Jesus has his eye on the destruction of Jerusalem. And this, within a generation, um, Christianity will be confirmed, if you will, that the kingdom's arrival will be confirmed because um, the temple will be taken out and the new temple, which is the body of Christ and the people, the community of Christ, will, will by virtue of this event, be confirmed as, as God's purpose and plan for the present, for the present age, and until the final eschaton, until the second coming of Christ. So I, I think we do have to recognize that the, that the kingdom comes in part through the judgment of the Son of Man at at the um, destruction of Jerusalem. And now, you know, some might say that's a cop out, but I think it does explain the generation statements. It does explain the fact that the church would not even get through Israel before that would that would happen. Right, and I mean, you sometimes hear that that verse as a gotcha passage against Christians, but the same people who would use it as a gotcha passage would say that the Gospels weren't written until 70, 80, 100 <laughs> AD, and at the point, you know, why would they leave it in? Right, exactly. <laughs> it seems like you couldn't have that one both ways. Yeah, the hard sayings of Jesus are great evidence that we've got a faithful gospel tradition. Because I sure would have taken a lot of these out. Yeah, it's true. It's if you were gonna if you were just gonna make something up to convince people to follow you, you sure you sure wouldn't say some of the things Jesus says in the in the gospels. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you have a trio of chapters here that discuss the way Jesus offends modern sensibilities on racial, ethnic, and gender grounds. Obviously, you don't have time to go over in detail all three of those chapters. I'm more interested in what it says that he makes us nervous about those three things, things, things that are so important right now in uh, contemporary society, race, ethnicity, gender. Why does Jesus make us so nervous? Yeah, you know, I, I, what's interesting is this is one of those things where everybody likes Jesus, is I don't think we notice those sayings very much. I mean, if you ask people Jesus' view of women, you'll go, okay, Paul, Paul's misogynist, Paul's this, you know. We, we yeah. go after Paul. But they don't go after Jesus. They, they, you know, Jesus treated women with such respect. He, uh, you know, he had women in his entourage. This is, um, but he chose, you know, so in, in some ways these are not what are generally viewed as the most controversial things about about Jesus, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention the ethnic thing as well in a minute, but 
Um, but he did choose 12 men, you know. And if Jesus was so countercultural, why would he choose 12 men um, and, and no women among his, his central, central core? And, um, you know, of course, in, in the evangelical church anyway, there's, there's two broad answers. One is that there is something there about male leadership and that, that some would just call it male responsibility rather than male leadership. But, but the, that there's something there that is universal and that, that, that Jesus is making a statement. The other is, is that this is simply cultural. It would have been incredibly scandalous to have 12 among his most intimate uh, disciples to have any any women among his most intimate disciples and and I as as I do on several of these I just lay out evangelical alternatives and try to present the best evidence for both both perspectives on that but in either case there is there's no doubt it seems to me that Jesus had an extraordinarily progressive perspective uh, on women in terms of having them in his really in his leadership I mean Mary Magdalene um, you know, certainly not Jesus' wife, but a remarkable woman who was clearly a leader um, in, um, in his movement and um, plays a prominent role, um, the first to see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, um, always named first of the women disciples. And so I, I think there is there is an exaltation of women that we see implicitly, at least, um, in his ministry. Um I don't know if you want me to address the ethnic side. Again, we, we tend to think of uh, this is not normally viewed as the most controversial um, of, of Jesus' statements. But he does call, um, you know, Gentiles dogs to the Syrophoenician woman. He says it's not good to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. And, and yet even in that episode, there's a subversion of the traditional Jewish view um, or the common Jewish view, I should say, of the Gentiles as dogs. Jesus, Jesus is playing. Um, well, there's two views. Um, some would say that, that that Jesus is is sort of goes through a conversion moment when he suddenly realizes that God's purpose and plan is for the Gentiles, and the woman convinces him to change the focus of his ministry. Um, that would be possible, except it so runs counter to what we see um, in terms of Jesus's ministry throughout the rest of the Gospels, where Jesus is always in control. He knows what he's doing, and he's provoking faith in this woman, it seems to me. That's, that's got to be how the Gospel writers understood it anyway. And so even in a passage like that, to say Jesus is ethnocentric or, or racist, it's, it's hard to su- support that. So that, that in, in some ways, that's one of the easiest ones to resolve, because then he tells so many parables about people coming from east and west to, to eat of the kingdom of God and the and the children of the kingdom, the you know, the religious leaders will be cast out, and, and the, these kind these kinds of things. So he, he makes these statements, but he does make them in in context where there's no doubt his tongue is in his cheek, and that he's trying to he's presenting sort of the Jewish um, traditional stereotype so that he can be subversive against that stereotype. I've always liked that scene because it's it's like he and the woman are playing the dozens. And he just, he, he just, you know, he throws one at her, and when she throws it back, he enjoys it so much that he does what she, he asks her to do, yep. what she asks him to do, rather. And one of my favorite, because um, the, the thing we point out in the book, and, and I think it's, it's delightful, is that Jesus never loses a debate. When the religious leaders come, he always wins. He humiliates them, he shames them, and in that culture, shame is such a huge value. And, and this is the only place in the Gospels where he loses or he concedes an argument to someone else. 
basically says, oh, yeah, you know, maybe we will throw the, or allow the, the dogs to eat the bread and, and it falls from the, from the table. And so I, it, this woman beats him. She, she gets him to concede, and she is a Gentile, and she is a woman. You know, two incredible strikes against her, and yet she's the one who comes out on top in this debate. So I think that's delightfully subversive to traditional values of that day. Well, the book concludes with a discussion of the resurrection, which is probably the, the biggest sticking point for a lot of people, the, the thing a lot of people have the biggest problem swallowing. Why, why, is, why, why do you include the resurrection on a list of uh, qualities where Jesus is behaving badly? Yeah, yeah. It's good. And I, I don't know, because I wanted to. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> Varsity, and I haven't really told, let me briefly, and you can cut this if you want, but uh, let me briefly tell you the story of the book um, is InterVarsity came to me with this title. I'd love to say that I came up with it. But, of course, David Lamb has written, had written a book called God Behaving Badly. And it did quite well, talking about the, you know, the God of the Old Testament, the jealous God, the angry God, the genocidal God, all of, all of these things. And, and doing the same thing, presenting a series of paradoxes and seeking some, some resolution to those paradoxes. So, so InterVarsity came to me. Um, to do Jesus Behaving Badly as sort of a supplement to that, as a series, if, if you will. And I, I thought it was a wonderful idea and jumped at the chance to do it because there are so many hard sayings. Um, but I didn't want to just do a hard sayings. And, you know, that's been done. F.F. Bruce wrote the hard sayings of Jesus years and years ago where he takes each one and resolves it and, and gives the evidence. But I wanted a book that didn't just sort of answer those questions but rather answer those questions by describing the mission and message of Jesus and doing it progressively. So I actually, some of the, maybe the fun chapters that, that, um, that it's clear you've got contrasts show up in the middle of the book instead of at the beginning or at the end, because I wanted in the first two, three chapters to um, establish the mission and message of Jesus. What did it mean? What did his central message, the kingdom of God, mean? actually. And, and so the book actually follows a progress. It's meant to sort of unfold his life step by step by looking at these controversial statements. Well, if you're going to unfold his life, you've got to get to the point of when he enters Jerusalem and is crucified. Is that evidence, like Bart Ehrman and so many would say, of the fact that he was in fact a, a failed apocalyptic prophet? So chapter 11 deals with that question. You know, did the kingdom fail to come? Is, was he a failed apocalyptic prophet? And then that leads naturally then to, you know, was he vindicated as a crucified um, prophet? Was he, is he, is he the resurrected Lord or, or is he simply a decaying corpse? So I felt like if the book was going to be not just a hard sayings book, but in fact the story of Jesus, the mission and message of Jesus from the perspective of the difficulty difficult sayings and paradoxes, then we needed to end with the resurrection. And so that's, that's the, the long story of, of, of why I included uh, the resurrection. And, of course, I wanted to take us to the hard, the difficulty of the resurrection. And, and I just wrote a comment, finished a commentary on Mark's gospel um, a couple years back. And so, you know, Mark's got the most difficult of resurrection appearances because he doesn't have any resurrection appearances. Right. <laughs> you know, Jesus... Uh, is risen from the dead, but it's only announced by the angel and, and announced by Jesus' predictions ahead of time. The women leave, and the last thing we know is they were bewildered and afraid and didn't say anything to anyone. End of story. And, you know, did Mark finish it and it got lost, or did Mark want to end there? Huge debate. So I start there with the difficulty of the resurrection it's, itself. Um, 
And then, and then I, I say, okay, there's no doubt that there are challenges, difficulties within the resurrection accounts. There's um, uh, par- apparent contradictions or at least differences of perspective within the various Gospels. Um, but, but let's take a deeper question. What do we know for sure? What can we confirm beyond reasonable doubt in terms of the events surrounding the resurrection? And that's why I turn to sort of the five, what I call the five practically indisputable points about the resurrection. Um, first, that he was definitely dead, <laughs> that, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, um, that, that secondly, that he was buried. Um, the burial is critically important because only with the burial do you have the tomb, um, and many want to eliminate the tomb. If they eliminate, el- eliminate the fact that Jesus is buried in a tomb, then you don't have the problem, which is the third point, and that is the fact of the empty tomb, the fact that the tomb was discovered empty, the fourth point are the resurrection appearances that people claim, many people claim to have seen Jesus alive. And the fifth point is there's no doubt the transformation that took place uh, in, in the followers of Jesus. Something must have happened that produced that transformation. You don't see that transformation when you have other revolutionaries and insurgents killed, executed. Something happened after that, that death that caused them to believe uh, and, and that Jesus was alive and to be transformed. So that, that's the, the story of, of that last chapter and why I included the resurrection, because I think we want to tell the whole story of Jesus, and you can't tell the story of Jesus without at least examining, you know, the, the, the final episode, the claim that, in fact, he did, not, he, he did not stay in the tomb, but that he rose victorious. Well, and, and most of the cultural acceptors of Jesus aren't going to accept the resurrection, right? I mean, when Gandhi said he likes Jesus, it's not because he thought Jesus was resurrected. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And so ultimately, and as, you know, Paul says, take it or leave it, but if Christ is not raised, then then really Christianity doesn't hold any water. Um, and Jesus was something else other than Christians believe that he was. And um so, yeah, I do, I do think it, it is the crux that Paul makes it out to be. I like to end these interviews by asking about what you have next that you're working on, because I know once you finish one academic project, you're usually moving on to the next. Do you know, uh, do you know what's next for you? Well, I, <laughs> nothing is exciting, nothing as fun as this, um, although I would, wouldn't mind um, writing more in this kind of vein. Um, I, I have a number of things. I have a... Um, a little grammar book that I'm working on um, for Zondervan um, that, that's basically how to, um, tools to using the, the biblical study software, the, the original language software. Um, I've got um, a hermeneutics text on the horizon. Um, I wrote a, a, a more popular level hermeneutics text called How to Read the Bible in Changing Times, but I'm contracted for a full-scale, a much more in-depth classroom kind of a text for hermeneutics. And then I have a critical introduction to Mark, uh, Mark's gospel that I'm, I'm, I've got on the horizon as well. I've written two commentaries. I revised the expositors on Mark, and I wrote the Zondervan exegetical commentary on Mark. And so uh, now there's an opportunity to, to write a critical introduction. There's a new series that's going to be done on critical introductions. So those are some of the, the projects that are <laughs> either on the near horizon or the distant horizon. Well, I hope one or all of them will bring you back on the show to talk to us again. We've been talking to Mark L. Strauss. He's the author of Jesus Behaving Badly from InterVarsity. There'll be a link to it on our website at christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. 
Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening. <laughs>